Well, before we begin to look at God's word, let us speak with him and ask for his assistance. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we can come here before you this morning, that you have encouraged each of our hearts to be present here. We thank you for your word, which we have before us, and we pray that you will help me as I work through this passage and that it will be a great encouragement for all those gathered here this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit may indeed be amongst us and that we may be enlightened by your word and strengthened and go out from here today uh, able to do greater acts of service for you after hearing from your, uh, from your mouth, from your voice. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, I did entitle this uh, sermon David Who, as Ray mentioned earlier. I'm not good with sermon titles. Uh, my point there was, who is David? Uh, what can we find out about David? Uh, this, is, this is actually one of the most impo- important passages in the Bible and it's not always seen to be that way uh, by Christians. Uh, we aren't familiar with it as we probably should be. It's considered by a lot of Old Testament theologians as one of the purple passages of the Bible. They call it you know, one of those ones that we should really take it, uh, pay a lot of attention to. And I just thought before we uh, get stuck into it, and why it is so important, is uh, I'd run quickly through what we've had coming earlier in the Old Testament. So, of course, with the beginning of the Old Testament, we've got Genesis, so we've got creation there, and we've got Adam as uh, the pinnacle of creation, the, the ultimate climax of creation being created. Man, in God's image, is created there. Then we move from Adam onwards to Abraham, and uh, God selects out Abraham and gives him these great promises and uh, gives him a covenant there. And then, of course, we go on to Jacob, who is then Israel, and from him come the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they go down to Egypt. And then, of course, they come out of Egypt, out of slavery with the Exodus, under the leadership of Moses. And then uh, we have the conquest. So Moses dies and the Israelites move into the promised land under Joshua. And so they, they have lots of wars and battles and it's very exciting as a young boy to read those passages of scripture. So we've got that leading up. And then we've got judges with the people in the land and there's this continual cycle of, of trouble as they, they continually turn away from God, the Israelites, and they keep having these judges raised up to, to uh, save them from the trouble that they're going through uh, that God had brought, brings upon them as a judgement for the sin that they're continually going into. And then we come to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel and that's where Israel's history takes an important turn away from judges to having a king. And 1 and 2 Samuel are basically laying the foundation for a kingship within Israel. And we see uh, the people ask for a king and they get the king of Saul who turns out to be a bit of a bad egg and we see Daniel running around in the hills for a while there as one of um, God's anointed as well and then in 2 Samuel David takes the role as king over Israel and then we have the first few chapters of 2 Samuel leading up and then we've got this climax. This is 2 Samuel 7 that we've come up to. We've had the foundation laid for a kingship and here we have David on the throne and we've got this massive climax in 2 Samuel 7. And it's kind of like uh, getting a report card, this, this chapter in a way. I always like report cards at school. Uh, my wife says that's because I'm a nerd. But I always like looking forward to getting report cards, even from primary school age. And often they had that, that word that I, it took me a while to learn what it meant. It was conscientious 
but I, I thought it meant I was a good scientist or something, but it's a conscientious student. It used to, this recurring phrase. And so I used to like report cards and I used to like getting them and if you came first in the class you got book prizes, you got vouchers for Angus and Robinson and if you could accumulate them from multiple classes it would be really good and you'd have lots of money to spend at Angus and Robinson and accumulate more knowledge from the books. So I always liked report cards. And this is like a report card on David. David's come, he's been running around the hills, he's got the throne and now we come to another chapter in David's life and the most important chapter. See, a lot of people think when they think David, David, who, who's David in the Old Testament? Oh, he's the one who slew Goliath. He's the one who, you know, with the sling, it was, you hear it in Sunday school, that's, that's who David was. Or maybe if you, once you get a bit older you know about David and Bathsheba. But this is the, the ultimate chapter Uh, for David because it presents him in a really positive light. It's a good report card. It's the kind of report card that you want to get, not one that you're a bit afraid to take home to mum. Why is it good? Well, uh, I'll go through that. So my first main point this morning is what do we find out about David himself from this passage? Because we're going to look at David firstly and then we're going to look at other people as well uh, in relation to this passage. So my first main point is what do we find out about David himself from this passage? What does it say about him that's so positive? Well, there's many things that present him very positively in this passage. And I'll just run through them uh, quickly uh, to begin with. One, one thing that's very positive about him is that he's called a king. Now, that may seem pretty obvious, but uh, it, it's, it's repeated there in a way that sort of really presents it really hard that he is the king. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, if you've got your Bibles there, it's good to have them open in front of you. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it says, After the king, it doesn't say King David, it says the king. The king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, calling him the king there in verse 1 and then into verse 2 it says, He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Uh, Implicit in verse 2, the NIV hasn't translated there, it has the word king again. And then in verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, calling him a king repeatedly. This is the one, this is the king. So he's, uh, he's getting a good mark, that's uh, one tick on the report card. Another uh, word that's used to describe him positively is in verse 8. Now then tell my servant David, uh, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler. So he's not just a king, he's a ruler. Now that word ruler, it's used interchangeably a bit in the 1 and 2 Samuel, but it can also mean prince. It can mean ruler, it can mean leader, and it's an important word to have, in, uh, to be referred to. Uh, to be called a prince is a good thing, and it kind of means that uh, even though he's called the king, he's still a prince in a way, because who's the real king of Israel? The real king is God. God is the king. And when they ask for a king, God actually says, they're rejecting me as king. So it's not such a good thing to ask for a king, because really God is the king. And the king, that, the human king, he's a prince really and so that's uh, that word ruler in verse 8. It's, kind of, it's got a priest, uh, prince overtones as well. So he's just a ruler as well. But it's a very positive thing, even so, uh, to be called the prince, to be called the ruler, a leader of God's people. Another important thing in the passage that presents uh, him really positively is the fact that he's got the ark of God. Now that's a really important point. It's there in verse 2. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. He's got the ark of God. Now, it is really important how you relate to the ark of God. Having the ark of God symbolises having God's presence. And repeatedly through 1 and 2 Samuel, things happen with the ark of God. Things, uh, the way that people relate to it can bring blessings or it can even bring curses. 
The way you relate to the ark of God is very important because if you've got it and you aren't in a good relationship with it, it can be a very bad thing. An example of that is back in uh, 1 Samuel when the Philistines capture the ark of God and they take it to their, uh, their territory. So the Philistines aren't Israelites, they aren't the people of God. They take it and they all start to get tumours and they all start to get sick and die and they get really worried about having the ark of God there so they send it back. It was a bad thing to have the Ark of God for them. And uh, another example of a, a curse happening with the Ark of God is in just the previous chapter, chapter 6. If you look at chapter 6 there, uh, I might pick it up from verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, the Israelites have the Ark of God, and so they're the people that are called they there in verse 3. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. Uh, And then it says, uh, with the Ark on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might because the Lord, before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. Okay, so it seems like a really positive image we've got here. They've got the Ark of God, they're celebrating, they're bringing it along. Verse 6. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And then what happens in verse 7? The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. How you relate to the ark of God is very important and it can bring many curses if you are not relating to it in a positive way. And, but it does bring blessings as well and that's why it's a positive thing in chapter 7. It brings blessings we see uh, in 2 Samuel 6 as well, that same chapter. And David says, oh, I don't want this ark of God at the moment. It, it, it looks pretty scary stuff because someone got struck down by it. And so uh, we read in verse 10, he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. And then David gets told about it in verse 12. Now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. Having the ark of God can be a great blessing. And if you've got it and and you haven't got plagues going left, right and centre and you aren't being struck down, then it means that you're on a positive thing. You're on to a good thing. So having the Ark of God, even though it's there in a tent, in chapter uh, 7, in verse 2, he says the Ark of God remains in a tent. Even though it's in a tent there and it seemed to be a bad thing that it's in a tent, it's still a good thing that he's got the Ark there. He's been able to bring it up from Jerusalem, uh, up to Jerusalem in chapter 6 there. So another tick on the report card, he's got the Ark of God. Another thing that says that he's really good is the fact that he's got a prophet around. Because being king isn't everything. The prophet still has a vital role in all of Israelites' history. Whenever there's a king there, there's also got to be a prophet around. And how you relate to a prophet as a king is a reflection on whether you've got a good report card going or whether you've got a bad report card going. How does uh, David relate to this prophet? Well, firstly, the fact is he's got a prophet there. So that's a good thing. So we see Nathan uh, in verse 2. He said to Nathan the prophet. So he's got a prophet there and he's communicating with the prophet. He's able to talk to the prophet. uh, And this prophet's a good prophet. How do we know this prophet's a good prophet? Because you can get bad prophets around. You know, lots of the kings like to accumulate false prophets around them. How do we know Nathan's a good one? Well, it's there in uh, verse 4. 
That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. The good prophets receive the word of the Lord. And so this is a a good prophet. Nathan's a good one because he's getting a communication from God. How else is he good? Well, we see in uh, verse 17 that he's a good prophet as well. Why is he a good prophet? Nathan's a good prophet because Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. He gets a prophecy from God and what does the, the Nathan do with it? He goes and reports all the revelation. Who's an example of a prophet who gets the word of the Lord and then runs away in the opposite direction? Jonah, you know, and he's not seen to be a very good prophet for doing that. But this prophet, Nathan, is a good prophet. He's one that reports the entire revelation to David. So he's got a, uh, David's got a, a good prophet around and this prophet approves of what David's up to. He gives him a good blessing there in verse 3. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Even though it's knocked back by the revelation, this prophet sees David as a good person. He sees him as a good one. And so it's another tick on the report card. Look, David's a good guy here. He's got a prophet who's a good prophet and the prophet approves of what he's up to. Uh, another thing that presents David quite positively is the fact that he's called my servant by God. And it's done it uh, twice in this passage. Uh, verse 5 of chapter 7, go and tell my servant David. And then down in verse 8 it says, now then tell my servant David. Now is it good to be called a servant? Well, usually that means you're lower down on the scale, doesn't it, if you're serving someone, if you're a servant. Uh, and that is true. It's kind of a reminder, David, look, remember, you're, you're my servant. But it's actually a good thing to be called one of God's servants. And it is, uh, we see that when Moses is called my servant. So David would have picked up on this and thought, yep, I'm like Moses. I'm like the, the big shot back there who got the, the Sinai covenant there. I am my servant when God talks to me. So another tick on the report card. Uh, God sees him as a, as a good guy here. And then we go into uh, verse 3 again and he says uh, he calls him, he, it, it, we have about David that he, the Lord is with him. That's an important phrase. Uh, in verse 3, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. And it doesn't just occur there, it also occurs down in verse 9. I have been with you wherever you have gone. It's important to know that God is with you. It's a very positive thing. What is the word Emmanuel translated as? God is with you. God is with you. So he's, almost, he's been called an Emmanuel type figure here. He's got God with him. Another very positive thing about David in this chapter. It really is a good climax here. Uh, And then uh, another positive thing, uh, it's my second last one, Uh, he is at rest and that's important that he's got peace and we see that there in verse 1, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, so we've got it there and we've also uh, got it in verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. David has his enemies cut off from him. He's at rest. And even the fact that he's in a palace, and what's the palace made of? He says in verse 2, I'm in a palace of cedar. That shows that he's at rest. If you're on the run, if you're always fighting with enemies, you're in tents. You know, you're in the battle stages. 
The fact that he's living in a place made of cedar shows that he's at rest. He's in a wooden place, a nice palace. He's at rest. Another tick on the report card saying, look, David's a good guy. Uh, And then the final thing that shows that he's really good is in verse 8. Verse 8, it it shows how far uh, David has come. It says, Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. He's showing how far David has come. He's like the most improved student for the year. Like, look, look what it says. It says from following sheep, following the flock, to be ruler over my people. So he's gone from chasing the, the sheep, following them as they're going along, to being in front, and not just being in front of the sheep and they're following him, people are following him. Very positive image we've got there. He's not chasing sheep. It's like, it's like he's you know, the most improved student. He's gone from chasing the, a piece of rubber ball out in the, the soccer field to you know, hitting the books or hard or you know, chasing girls to studying hard. You know, he's, he's doing the right thing there. He's come a long way. So we've got David here presented very positively. Is that it though? Is that all that we see here? Well, no. This is just the icing on the cake. All those little things that are pulled out, they're all the positive ticks on the report card. But then the big guns come out, the ultimate mark, the really important thing that says this passage is vital for seeing David as one of the most important figures in the Bible. And what is that? Well, he gets a covenant from God. It is in this passage that he gets a covenant from God. What's a covenant? Covenant's a really, really good promise from God. It's a a promise from God that I'm going to do certain things. So if that was like the report card, all those things, this is like getting the doctorate. This is like getting the certificate at the end of all the work that you've done. So you get all these reports and assessments all the way through, tick, 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 tick. And then you get the big gun. You get the doctorate. You get the, the certificate that you've been working hard for. And that's what this covenant is. Because, of course, when you get a certificate at the end of all your hard work and all your study, it then enables you to do certain things, doesn't it? it once you, if, you, if you go and do a medical degree, then once you get the doctorate, you can go out and start practising, start doing certain things. And it comes with great blessings being able to have that bit of paper. Having this covenant comes with great blessings for David. God gives him this great covenant and that is the cake. All those other little things, they're just icing on the cake. The covenant is the important thing because God doesn't give out covenants willy-nilly. He doesn't pass them out all the time. Although we do see that if we're going to compare it to a doctorate, you see that in this uh, culture at the moment, you know, $50 US on the internet, you can get a PhD in whatever you like. You know, you just pay over the money, they'll print one and you print it out, you know, it's great. God's not like that. He doesn't give out covenants willy-nilly. He gave one out to Abraham. He, uh, gave, he, he gave one uh, to the people of Israel through Moses, big shot Moses. And then the uh, house of Levi, they get a covenant as priests. God doesn't give out covenants all the time. So this is a big deal for David to get a covenant. 
And what is the qualifica- uh, this qualification of having a covenant? What does it bring? Just as we get a certificate, it brings certain privileges, certain things that you can do, certain things that come to you. Well, uh, this covenant is spelt out here. It's not actually called a covenant. I should just uh, remind you, you won't find the word covenant there, but it's later on referred back to this passage and it's called a covenant with David. So you won't actually find the, the, the specific word there, covenant, but it definitely is a covenant uh, because of the references later on and because of the words that are used here. Uh, we see in verse 9, what does this covenant bring? Uh, it says there in verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. That rings of the covenant with Abraham. Abraham, was his name was going to be made great. And so we've got that here with David as well. One of the privileges of the covenant is that his name would be great. What else uh, comes along with it? Uh, well, it continues uh, one of those themes that we, we touched on just slightly earlier. In verse 10 it says, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. It brings peace with it. The covenant entails peace and it tells it for the people that are with David as part of this covenant. They will no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and I have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The covenant brings peace. That's one of the blessings of being in this covenant. One of the blessings uh, for David is that he will have peace. But it doesn't just stop there. It continues. The Lord declares to you, it says halfway through verse 11, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. God's going to build him a house. Now is that going to mean like he's going to have a nice castle? You know, he's going to, God's going to build him a nice house to live in? Well, he's already got a palace. You know. what, what does it mean by build a house for you there? Well, it's actually kind of a wordplay because at the beginning of the passage, uh, David says, I'm going to build a house for, for God. And God's turning around and saying, no, 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 I'm going to build a house for you. If anyone's going to do some building, it's going to be me. I'm going to build a house. And what he's really getting at is he's having a bit of a wordplay there. He's meaning a household, offspring. I'm going to build a dynasty for you. And that is spelt out there for us in verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body. God is going to raise up from, uh, offspring for him that come from his own body and what every father wants to know is not just that he'll have kids, that the kids will be safe. And so what does it say there in verse 12? And I will establish his kingdom. God will be there establishing the kingdom. These promises aren't just for David. They're for the people of Israel. They'll have rest as well. But they're also for his sons. It will continue. The kingdom will continue. It won't stop here. And it goes on to talk about the offspring in positive light again and again. It says there in verse 13, He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The son will be able to build the, um, the, the temple, the house for God's name and his kingdom will be established forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. That's very important language to hear there. That's adoption language. It means God is saying, your son will be like my son. What a privilege, what an honour for God to say, one of your kids 
and the kids that follow him will be like my children. I will adopt them and put them in my family. And I won't just say it, that I'll adopt them and that they'll be my children. What did he do? He says, I'll do the fatherly thing. What's that? Halfway through verse 14. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. God's going to be a good father. He's going to discipline the children. He's not just going to say, he's my son. He's going to be around and guide the son. He's going to look after the son. And when the son steps out of line, he's going to punish him so that he gets back into line. This is what every father wants to know that's going to happen with his children, that God's going to look after him. And then in verse 15 it says, but my love will never be taken away from him. God will never remove love from from David's offspring. It will never be taken away. And he gives a little comparison there in verse 15. As I took it away from Saul. So we've had Saul as an example there in 1 Samuel. We followed Saul for so long. Uh, If you read the the book of 1 Samuel, you see Saul going in and out and all these kinds of things. And really he's there as a great comparison to David because what does God say? I won't take away my love, my keseth, my, my mercy I won't take it away from Saul. And he finishes it off in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This isn't just a dynasty that lasts for a couple of generations and will peter out. How long does it go for? It goes forever. That word forever comes up a couple of times. It doesn't just come up once. Uh, It's there in... uh, In verse 13 as well it says, He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then in verse 16 it's there twice. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the greatest blessing from God, isn't it? That it won't, I'm going to give you all these blessings and it's not just going to be time limited, it's going to go on and on forever. And so this is the greatest uh, certificate that could be given to, to David, the, the greatest reward that's given to David, the greatest thing that could present him positively is that he has this eternal, unconditional covenant that God is going to continue to bless him, never take away his love. His line will have greatness, his line will have peace, His line will be blessed and his kingdom will be blessed. It won't just be that uh, his children will continue on, that they will be kings. A kingdom will be established forever. So that's what we find out about David. That was my first main point and it was sort of a long one. What do we find out about David? And so I said my title of the sermon was David Who? Well, this is uh, something that you can find out about David. He is a big shot in the schemes of God. He's presented so positively here. But is it just a case of, you know, bully for David, you know, his, his line looks pretty good and, you know, that's really all very well for him. Has this got any greater implications? Well, that brings me to my second main point. What do we find out about his son here? We have touched on the fact that, you know, he's, it talks about his family there and that's one of the blessings. But it speaks specifically about children and we find out later that they keep coming back to this passage talking about children and in particular sons. And it does say in this uh, passage uh, in verse uh, 13, it speaks about Solomon there because it says he, will, uh, he is the one who will build a house for my name. And we know later on that Solomon's the one who built the temple. And so it does speak about Solomon here but ultimately the passage points to another son It points to the most important son that would ever come from the Davidic line. 
and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And we can't ignore the fact that Jesus Christ is all through this passage he's pointed to. And uh, the New Testament writers pick up on this. They importantly pick up on it and in in many ways David is uh, referred to in relation to Jesus on and on uh, with the genealogies that we see. Both Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, are from David. They're part of the Davidic line, so genetically they're linked in and so uh, Jesus is linked in genetically to David. But also uh, people on the road, they recognise this, the blind men call out to Jesus, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So it was a recognised thing that he was a son of David. And then we have in Acts 13, it, it, it spells out uh, for us as well the fact that the New Testament writers had cottoned on to the fact that Jesus was a son of David and that makes him very important. If you've uh, got the passage there that we read earlier, that Danny read for us in Acts 13, it, it says it a couple of times. Firstly, it points out that he is a direct descendant. Acts 13, verse 23, it says, From this man's, that's David in the previous verse, from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. uh, Jesus is a direct descendant from David. He's making it very clear there. And then uh, going down to verse uh, 33, we have that adoption language coming up again. In verse 33, uh, it's It says, he was fulfilled for us, uh, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Just as it said back there in in 2 Samuel 7, that he would be the son, so it is said here. Yes, uh, Jesus has that same thing. He is God's son. And it's spelt out there for us. It's an important thing to notice. And then in verse 35, uh, it, it carries on from what... I'll uh, we'll start at verse 34. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Those blessings that we've seen in 2 Samuel 7, who are they going to? They're going to Jesus, one of David's sons. Very important to recognise that Jesus is all through this passage. And it's not just that he's uh, directly referred to with those passages from Acts 13 and other examples in the New Testament. uh, Jesus fulfils, he's like a Davidic figure as well. There's so many things that we have described about David that are then also said of Jesus. Jesus comes up not just as a son of David, but he's like David as well. All those things that I mentioned at the beginning, uh, that are sort of the positive ticks on the report card, all those things can be said of Jesus as well. He's got an eternal throne. He's got that that throne. He's a king. And he he brings rest and peace, just as David had rest and peace. He's a prince. Just as, uh, just as we, it says of David that he was a, a leader and a prince, so it is said of Jesus. Uh, he's a king, he's a servant. He's my servant. He's, he's God's servant. He's an Emmanuel figure. It's, that word Emmanuel is referred to, to Jesus. And he's connected with the prophets, just as we saw with uh, David being connected with Nathan. Jesus is connected with the prophets. He's got his own prophet as well who goes ahead of him, John the Baptist goes ahead saying, look, prepare the way for the Lord. There's someone coming that you've got to pay attention to. Jesus is connected with prophets and he's actually called a prophet himself. He is the prophet that Moses talks about. Jesus is connected with prophets and he's also disciplined. Uh, It's said there in 2 Samuel 7 uh, that 
when he does wrong, in verse 14, when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Now, Jesus never sinned himself, but he did take sin upon him. He took our sin upon him. All Christians who believe in Jesus, their sin was put upon him and what happened to him when he took on sin? He was beaten with rods. And more than that, he was crucified. He experienced a torturous death because he took sin upon him. So we can see even a fulfilment there of that verse 14. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rods of men. Jesus was punished with the rods of men for taking sin upon him. Not that he actually sinned himself. He was perfect. He never sinned, even though he was tempted in every way. He was without sin. But he was punished. He was beaten. So we see that Jesus is the is all over this passage. There are so many allusions to him, specifically talking about him as a son, but also as a, a Davidic figure, also like David himself. So uh, we see then that this passage points to Jesus as inheriting these blessings. And is it a case again of, well, you know, good for David that he gets all these blessings and good for Jesus that he gets these blessings as well? It says there in Acts 13. This brings me to my third main point. My first was, what do we find out about David? Next was, what do we find out about his son? My third one is, what do we find out about David's children here? Not just his son, but all his children. Because the blessings don't stop there. They're for his offspring. There's sort of a, a play there in 2 Samuel 7 between talking about them in plural and talking about them singular. He's talking about one son and he's talking about offspring, plural there. So many children. What do we find out about David's children? Well, the blessings are for all his house and not just one son and that's particularly good news if you can be a part of David's household, if you can be a part of his house. Now, does that mean that you have to be genetically linked as you know, we generally speak about people's households? You've got to be genetically in there. So Mary and Joseph, they experienced the blessing because they were descended from David. Well, no, you can actually get into David's household by associating yourself with someone very important. And that's something that we often find in life that you can experience blessings when you associate yourself with someone else that's more important or that brings blessings. I remember when I, we moved from Queensland to New South Wales when I was fairly young, five years old, and I'd been, I'd been all gung-ho about school in Queensland, but when we moved to New South Wales, I couldn't stand you know, this new school, so many changes, and I was really scared of school. And even though I fought with my sister all the time at home, when I was at school, she was my older sister, four years older, I would hang on to her at the assembly and wouldn't let go. And she was in the higher year and I just associated good things with her. I needed to be near her. And I remember one of the teachers prying my fingers off her and dragging me off to my own class. I wanted to be associated with her because I knew that she was somewhere safe and somewhere sure, something familiar that I knew about. And so it is with us. We need to associate ourselves with someone who brings rest and prosperity and blessing. And that is by associating ourselves with someone in David's household. And that is that son that we just spent some time looking at, the one that's pointed to from 2 Samuel 7. We need to associate ourselves with Jesus Christ. When we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and that he paid for our sins on the cross, we are adopted into David's family and then what is David's family adopted into? It's adopted into God's family. 
We saw that there in 2 Samuel 7. It said that David's children would be God's children. And so if we are adopted into David's family, we're adopted into God's family. And so then all the blessings come to us. All those blessings given to David and his household, they come to us as well. Our names become great and we uh, experience all the blessing of peace and prosperity that David is promised. And so it is said of of Christians that uh, we are children of God. We are princes, just as it says Jesus is a prince and David is a prince. We are kings and we are described in the New Testament as being kings. We are servants. We are Emmanuel figures. We have God within us if we are a Christian. We are Emmanuel type figures. We have God with us. We are connected with the prophets. We stand on a shore and foundation of prophets and we have the greatest prophet of them all as our big brother, Jesus. He is the greatest prophet of all. He is there with us and we are disciplined. As children of God, we are disciplined. When we do things wrong, We do ask for forgiveness from God and he takes away the eternal punishment of sin for that sin, uh, the punishment for that sin, but we are still disciplined. Hebrews 12 talks about that quite clearly, that God disciplines those he loves. And so just as God promised, I will discipline your children, David, he promises to discipline Christians as well. He looks after us and guides us and cares for us. So that's what comes to Christians. Do you want these blessings? Do you want this passage from 2 Samuel 7 to apply to you? All these blessings that came to David and his children, do you want them to come to you? Well then you have to turn and associate yourself with Jesus Christ. You have to believe in him for the payment for your sins. And then you can become a part of David's family and you become a part of God's family. Because the temptation for us is always to think that there's another way to get blessings from God, that we can develop our own dynasty, that we can develop, develop our own house, our own line, and we'll experience blessings. And this is, this is like, you know, if, if we call the covenant there, uh, like getting a certificate, like getting a doctorate or a, a bachelor, you know, there are people out there who will practice medicine, calling themselves doctors and getting all the benefits, all the big pay, you know, that comes from the patients that come in and they will do work on the people but they've never actually qualified. They've never sat all the medical exams, they've never done them all and they're practicing and they're doing so dishonestly. They're trying to get the blessings of what comes with having that certificate. They're trying to get it without actually getting the certificate itself. They're trying to experience the blessings and that's what we as humans are always tempted to do. We try to get the blessings for ourselves without going to David's household. We think that we can do it just by doing our good works. If we do enough good works, God will bless us and give us our own dynasty. He will give us our own household with all the blessings. So if I you know, keep the Ten Commandments, if I you know, honour my parents, if I don't kill anyone, if I don't lie, if I don't covet, if I uh, honour my parents, you know, I will be okay, God will bless me. If I help out at the church, if I you know, clean the church, if I welcome people, if I water the plants, I mean, you aren't supposed to water the plants here, are you? Um, no, John does that. Um, no, so there are all things that we think are going to help us. They're going to establish our own house before God. And we want to get in to all these blessings without going to David. But we can't. We have to go to David. We have to go to Jesus Christ as the son of David. 
and then we can experience these blessings. We cannot establish our own righteousness. We cannot establish our own blessings and expect God to give them to us if we are apart from the house of David. All other religions that ignore David, ignore David's son, ignore Jesus Christ, they won't experience those blessings. They won't experience an eternal rest, an eternal peace. Remember that word forever came up three times. This is an eternal issue. This is something that will affect you forever, not just for this life. You have to be very careful that you are not trusting in your own house, your own self, but you're trusting in the house of David because that is the house that comes with an eternal promise, an eternal promise of blessing and it is only through Jesus Christ. Are you a part of that house? Do you meditate upon this passage and claim the promises there of David for yourself? Are you princes and princesses sitting here today, a part of David's house? Let us speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful part of scripture, this wonderful climax of David's reign. We thank you for the way that you made this covenant with him, that covenants are not just something that are a technical term and boring and for Old Testament theologians to talk about, but they bring a great promise and many blessings, that they are a part of your mercy. You had no need to establish a covenant with David, but you in your mercy you did. And then you opened up that covenant for all those who are part of David's household, that Israel's history was then linked forever with David and that is possible through Jesus Christ, the son of David, a direct descendant but so much a Davidic figure in so many ways and that we, if we believe in him, can come and be a part of that eternal covenant, that eternal household that will go on forever and ever. We pray that everyone here this morning has put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ and that they will be experiencing the blessings of this covenant forever, that one day in heaven we will have rest from our enemies. We will no longer be oppressed. We will no longer need to be disciplined because we will be righteous and will be living in peace and prosperity with your Son, Jesus Christ, forever. We pray that everyone has this sure hope and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.